Hello, hello, hello. Happy holidays to the listeners. You are listening to another KG Fifth Ward Wildcat and Doc podcast. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Maybe to another Christmas, maybe to another day after. I'm happy. Doc, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's been a few weeks since the uh, last podcast, so a few things have happened. And we're going to touch on right at the jump, uh, talk about the Celebration Bowl. It was a heck of a ball game. So, Doc, you got it. Yeah, it was a really entertaining game. Uh, came down to a last drive. And what many people are talking about is the call. If you are an A&T uh, Aggies fan, you're saying, hey, they got it right. And it was not a kick. And they had the ball, and they ended up going down the field and getting the score. Or if you are a Grandma State Tiger fan, you're saying, hey, that was a catch. They got it incorrect on the field. Then they reviewed it and doubled down on what you thought was going to overturn and give you the ball instead of waiting for a game-winning touchdown or certainly a field goal. And they said no. They confirmed actually what was on the field. So that was probably one of the crucial plays of the game in terms of outside of play on the field. Both teams came in with championship-level defenses. Uh, that stood up to the test and made their statements throughout the game. A&T's defense had the final say in the game uh, as they got it done. A couple of key turnovers for Gramlin. Um, two of them led directly to touchdowns for the Aggies, giving them short fields. And then you had an interception by Kincaid that would allow them to actually have, uh, probably take the go-ahead score early in the third quarter, and unfortunately for them, he threw an interception, so he literally took seven points off the board, um, so those were cru- crucial game uh, plays in that game, uh, but Devontae Kincaid was probably the big player of the game, he rushed for 93 yards, 16 carries, and basically that was all that Graham could get done on the field, as Mark Chaz Carter was, uh, stood up and just could not get going, I my self question was he's still injured. He got injured in that um, Bayou Classic where Dustin Ribs came back in the game and gave it a go and actually had a big score in the game. And essentially for the Squack Championship game, uh, they started beating up on Alcorn before Alcorn pushed late in the game to at least make it interesting. But essentially they only played for a half there because they got away um, and never did come back in the game. So I thought it was a little bit of injury. He, Obviously, wouldn't get let on to that as it was tough and locked uh, in the uh, press conference after the game. Uh, just to let you know, but Kincaid actually threw for 225 and two touchdowns. Again, he did have a one crucial interception. Uh, but Raynard, quarterback uh, for A&T Aggies, 23 to 43, 225 yards, a touchdown. Did have two interceptions. Uh, but Marcus Cartwright got 20 carries for 110 yards, including a touchdown. Big game for him as he got it done. Uh, as the uh, Aggies were just very tough in that game, you couldn't really grab it, couldn't get the ball, just couldn't go get the ball going on the ground. I should say running that contest. Uh, but that was it. As North Carolina A and T is twenty-one to fourteen, and they pull off the perfect season, uh, twelve and 0, first time in their history. 
if they get to 12 victories and do it in great fashion as they go undefeated. Uh, previous, there were three other teams that went undefeated, but that was very early in the history. One of them was like 7-0. and The other one, 8-0, to kind of give you some indications just how long ago that when you were only playing seven, eight games in a season. And so um, kudos for the Aggies, kudos for the MIAC. They got bragging rights to go up 2-1 over the squat in terms of that contest. As we said, this game came in with the two top teams that were playing best HBC football probably for the last five years in regards to that. So uh, that was big talk in terms of what was going on. But some of the talk uh, after the game was more about the attendance. Uh, they listed the attendance as 28,556 or something, 576, I think it was, but 28, just over 28,000 or under 29,000. Um, so that was intriguing. The SWAC had their uh, office doing the stats, and they put out an early stat book that had 16,000 in it. That really drove people crazy on the Internet. As you know, we might get into a little bit later in the podcast, this bowl season, you've seen a small, farce crowds, but HBCU fans are so critical of themselves and um, and so used to big attendance numbers and classics that it seems as if they are always trying to compare to that and don't quite understand that this is a different when you got ESPN events where they're more intrigued about the matchup and they got a quality game. Uh, the average of viewership was uh, slightly down, but still above the average. So from every indication of officials, uh, I'm talking about ESPN continues to be happy with what goes on in, in the matchup. And certainly the athletes on the field are excited about playing in the game, playing on television and all the things that go along with being in the bowl game, very official bowl game. But that was kind of the big dig was the attendance and how people just were beside themselves about the attendance. So that was quite uh, intriguing. Well, you were there. So what What, what do you think the, the crowd size was? I thought it was about 28,000. They got it right. I mean, actually, they were waiting until the end of the game. So they, they actually gave us the attendance from the actual ticket sale uh, as, you know, they, they get it now so they can give you direct attendance, so they were actually waiting for the official count, so they wouldn't just give an estimate or guesstimate. So they gave it, which is not what the SWAC is used to doing, so that's kind of what caused the confusion. So, yeah, it looked 28,000. I thought it may be even a little more than that. Uh, A&P really did well in terms of the crowd. Bramman, as has been heard of lately, they just don't quite travel like they used to in terms of that, and no longer. While they still have a great deal of interest, uh, they don't bring the fan interest of the local market in as they once did when they would travel literally around the world and, and created that branding mechanism that was second to none at that time. Uh, also, I thought it was interesting. You talked Mercedes-Benz, and um, I let Fifth Ward get in a little bit to talk about the price food that we found very interesting in there and got a little more about that. Uh, but before we... Getting into the pricing is, I thought it was also interesting now, as they build these new stadiums, you can see how they feel about the media. Uh, the the media area, very nice in terms of the design, uh, but where they put you is like you go from the 20, uh, uh, 20 into the end zone, literally uh, to buy an end zone, but still good seats, televisions in there, even small monitors in front of your booth, but you're so used to um, your old stadiums where you actually probably sitting at the 40 to the 40. Uh, that no longer 
uh, took place in there, and uh, I'm hearing a lot of new stadiums are going to that framework or putting you even higher up in terms of media. So I thought that was intriguing as how much they monetized that. The other argument about the attendance was the fact that the ticket prices increased, but obviously you could imagine that would be the case going into a new uh, stadium, but you had tickets that were from 15 to about $60 last year or the last few years, and then it went up to your least expensive ticket was $50 up to 175 So some people were uh, kind of talking about that as well and thought that attributed to the attendance. Um, I'm actually planning to do this study uh, for a class that I'm having uh, called um, Business Development Strategies and Ticket Sales. So I'm looking to work with John Grant to get some information uh, so we can get it to the students and kind of have them do some work about uh, analyzing the ticket components of that. So I'm just intrigued about that. Give you a little insight of how we take real-life games and take it to the classroom so students can learn from a case study analysis about what's going on. Before, do you want to say something about the uh, price? Yeah, uh, it was interesting. Uh, I got there on time. That was a line. But what bothered me more than anything else was most of these new stadiums now are going into what they call these flash tickets, where you it's all electronic, it's all online, and you have to uh, you have to uh, make a uh, uh, an online account. That means you have to give up your uh, information, credit card, photo ID, and as you get to the door, they uh, uh, they you swipe your card or swipe your ID, they print out a ticket. And then you go through the line. Now, where this is different at the, the Lousman Stadium, you actually use the ticket that, that's printed, and you push that through like you do. You use that like you do your uh, airline ticket. You put it on through a, uh, uh, scanner. a scanner, and the scanner is uh, it's, 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 uh, it's not handheld. It's, it's actually stationary, and then you walk right, right on through into uh, to your seat. <laughs> die it was the craziest thing and people and then when we asked some questions you know me I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask Based, what they've done at the new stadium is there are no hard uh, hard print tickets everything every ticket for every event is sold online so if you want a ticket for any event schedule at the new Atlanta Falcons uh, stadium you have to go online buy it and then pick your ticket up at the stadium. I'll print it. I'll print it. I'll print it yourself. And if you do, <laughs> you, you better make sure. I'm not going to get crazy, but you better make damn sure that all those barcodes can be seen on that printed ticket that you printed at home. Because right. not, they don't have a whole lot of will call windows that's available for you to go and get help. Nor do you want your phone to have to be updating at the time that you need to scan it. Because if, if your phone goes off, now this is the difference between what, what's used here in town and, and what they're using. If somebody makes an attempt to call you while you're in the process of trying to push your ticket through or get your information out, <laughs> the, the line with the, once, the, once you pick the phone up or somebody calls in and get it interrupted, it, all, it shuts down. 
And you'll start back on the process again. So you're standing in line hoping nobody calls you while you while you're trying to process and pick up your ticket. I wasn't bothered by the price of the ticket because I knew before I left town that it was going to be $60, which I was kind of shocked uh, that there were no fees and all seen around, uh, uh, added to the ticket, which would made it great. But like that, like I, I showed you when you when you when you and I talked while you and I were talking, the place is cheap. I mean, food around the building is all pretty much the same price. All entrees are nine dollars or less. There's nothing over ten dollars that I saw as far as a food entree, and that included from the burger basket to the chicken basket. It was all, and your your souvenir cups were like uh, five or six dollars, just depending on what size you wanted. And it's got printed up just like everybody else, you know, with the team's logo and players and all and everything on it. But there, there were two sizes. Which made it really real good because you didn't have to give your kid an oversized cup. You bought what you bought. Now I don't know how they came about figuring it out, but one thing for sure: if you had a family of four, where you were spending close, close to fifty dollars here in town, if not more, if you spend more than twenty-five dollars, it's because you made a decision to go and spend more than $25 for a family of four. And Doc, it, but I, I love the game. It was a good crowd, just like you said. And for the first time this season, I was able to sit and watch a game and watch the fifth quarter, which, made, which was nice. Um, and other than that, you know, the city was, the weather was fine. Wasn't bad. Folks wasn't unruly. I kind of liked that, and I was in and out, just like I said, bam, it was a good day. Yeah, I want to give you some highlights of some people. Markel Cartwright, MVP, running back for the Aggies, uh, really did a bang-up job in the game. Uh, Elijah Bell, he's 6'1", 221 pounds, had a big reception. He's just a sophomore. Look out for him uh, as he has NFL potential, but most of the talk, was on the offensive line, uh, tackle. Uh, Brandon Parker, 6'7", 309 pounds. Uh, senior, he actually had the agents there trying to get him, talk to him to sign with him, and boy, was he to talk. He looked every bit of 6'7". Looked for him to get a call on Sundays and playing uh, in the league. Very talented guy there. Um, so you could tell that these were teams Another stat I thought was interesting of uh, of uh, Ramblin State, of their 22 players on both sides of the ball, they had 17 uh, transfers, either JUCO or just Division One transfers. And then for Aggies, of their 22 players, you had 11. To let you know, that's just kind of the new uh, blend of uh, football at the FCS level. A lot of these transfers, again, they could be D1 or JUCOs. Um, if you want to get into that championship uh, level, and that's at almost any level of FCS, those teams playing in the playoffs or, as we talk about here, Celebration Bowl for HBCU programs, that's um, where you're going to have to get in that direction. Also, some of the bigger talks that we talked about, Willie Simmons going to Florida A&M, leaving Prairie View. Uh, Prairie View has got their van with Dooley. 
offensive coordinator for Grambling. And so that was really been uh, interesting talk today. Pine Bluff uh, took the offensive, I mean, defensive coordinator uh, from Alcorn State to kind of get some of these names off the board as this team uh, starting to make their move in terms of coaching search. That was fascinating in terms of what is going on there. And that pretty much was, was it as we talk about HBC sports. We'll give you the official uh, top team mid-major. Closed out on that a couple of weeks ago. First time in my history since I've been doing the poll over 15 years, essentially with Virginia State, the Trojans of the CIAA, the Lincoln Lions of the Central State Football League, our co-champions, both programs were undefeated until they win the playoff. The length of the Lions in their regular season at 10 and, I mean, in the season, I should say, at 10 and 1, 8 and 0. Virginia State, 10 and 1, 7 and 0. And obviously, no brainer uh, with both teams 1 and 2 going in this matchup that the Aggies get it done, completing their season at 12 and 0, 8 and 0 in conference rate. Perfect season. Another item that was pretty exciting that went up, was going on and really uh, getting a lot of attention on Twitter, social media platforms, was A&T, the Aggies, were recognized at the State House in North Carolina as a representative over the Greensboro area talked about the big game, the fact that the uh, celebration bowl that they wanted, they were undefeated 12-0. and 0. And at the end, he gave uh, Aggie cry, which is something that uh, those that are familiar with North Carolina A&T is what they love to say around there, so it really reverberated and was a nice thing to see and exciting for a lot of Aggies fans. So that was floating around on social media platform to kind of catch people up on what's going on in the ACC sport. Chime in before we get into some women's uh, basketball. Getting into some uh, basketball thoughts. If you would, the big team out there is look like North Carolina A&T is in the basketball business where they had a lot of their early history. Is um, They're at 7-7, seven and 6-0s, seven, seven wins, a Division One wins. They've been getting it done in the MEAC. So it's interesting as they start to get in the conference play next, uh, next week. Right behind them is North Carolina Central, so it looks like you're going to have one of those Aggie Eagles Valley again. They're coming in at five and eight. Morgan State four and seven. I'll give you a couple of teams that are getting some Division One wins. Sneaking there, and you get Tennessee State five and six. They gave a scare to Texas Longhorns. A lot of people were talking about about a week and, a week ago. And then on the SWAT, you got a lot of teams struggling. You actually have five teams that are winless at this point. So uh, SWAT has been taking its ten as last year. They jumped up and beat the MEAC head-to-head uh, -head series of about five games this year. They've only won one game against the MEAC in some contests, uh, going one of five with the only win Southern over Florida and them, the Rattlers. But uh, other than that, Ramblin' 4-8, and eight, Alcorn 4-9 and nine to give you a couple of teams that have found a way to get it. Prairie has two wins, Division One wins, uh, but haven't been able to win since that. So, all these teams are getting ready for conference play and excited about it because uh, it hadn't been looking too well outside of North Carolina and as I said earlier, in terms of non-conference competition, maybe Tennessee State as well. And, of course, Texas Southern. That's on the inside. Mint side went winless. It was one of the winless teams, black teams, but they start conference play 
uh, Monday, New Year's night, first home game of the year, of the season, playing Southern game's going to be on uh, ESPNU, I believe. It's the only time TSU's men are on in a, in the, for a SWAT game. It's the first game, Correct. which, you know, I don't understand. But TSU, Southern. Well, I didn't add that. It looks like there's going to be some changes to the SWAT office. Kind of put that out there a little bit ago. But uh, from everything I'm hearing, that uh, that should go down pretty soon, maybe by sometime in the end of January. You might be hearing a new commissioner for the SWAC, and maybe that'll change things in terms of the teams that have had better records getting more television exposure. We shall see. And it's, but new commissioner not going to be you, Doc? Uh, no, I, I'm still just working as a consultant. I worked my way, and the person that I've suggested they go with um, has found his way to see it, that he's probably getting a serious look. So I've kind of stepped to the side, a lot of policies and politics in there, and I hadn't been able to get past that. So I thought the next best thing is do what I do is do some great consulting. As long as they keep writing those checks, I'm, I'm fine with that. Of course. And we can always use more checks. Anybody want to send to with the KG, Fifth or Wildcat, and Doc Podcast, we'll really, you know, more than willing to accept them and put them in the bank. That's right. So, um, we're going to shift gears. We're going to come back to women's college well, basketball. I do want to, Go ahead. Um, don't want to shoot the women, so I do especially since we're going to transition over to uh, big-time women's basketball. I want to talk about the New and swag on the women's side. A little better off in terms of women's basketball, in terms of winning records. Bill Cookman is 8-3. and three. Uh, They're kind of coming back from what they did over the last couple of years, pushing the envelope, playing some good basketball. Norfolk 6-5. and five. Then you have some 500 teams, Morgan State, South Carolina State, both at 500, 6 and 6, 5 and 5, respectively. There, I'll give you some indication what's going on there. And then, SWAC, uh, you have Alabama A&M looking tough, as well as Texas Southern and Jackson State, 5 and 5, both Alabama A&M, the Bulldogs, and the Lady Tigers there, both at 5 and 5, and Jackson State at 4 and 4. It gives you some indication of what's going on on the women's side of the ledger these Division One uh, programs, both in the MEAC and SWAC and Tennessee State of the OBC as well. And Joyce Kennison at TSU, is, uh, last, I'm not sure if she still is, but at one point last week she was leading scorer in uh, NCAA basketball on women's side. So we're not, right. we are not um, marketers, advertisers, or whatever, but we have been known to say and suggest to listeners, fans, you all, y'all complain about lack of support, lack of interest, whatever. Well, you got one of the top scorers in the whole country, TSU. Go see them play. They played the first game of the double hitter on Monday, New Year's night. TSU Southern. So if you want to see George Kennison, go see TSU play. So you, if that's on you. It's not anybody else's fault if you don't go see TSU play. Gentlemen, since we're talking women's college basketball, um, Doc, you know, and and myself, one of the three of us is uh, is a big wig who we got to get out of his shell. Uh, He, uh, you know, 
he was, and we're going to tie it all together as we try to do best we can. Last week in Las Vegas was um, annual event, the uh, duel in the desert. And Wildcat was there as he has been last, what, three, four years, I believe, sir? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he saw some good basketball, but during uh, yeah, always good, good. well, yeah, during yeah. during the intermission between one game and the end of one game and the start of another, Wildcat took time to speak with and interview Charlie Cream, bracketologist for women's college basketball from ESPN slash ESPN dot com. So right now, without further ado, let the listeners listen to that interview. And then we'll come back and add more to it because I have a few things to add about the local Houston area teams, especially one who has a very, very surprisingly high, very good RPI. So here we go, listening to the interview, Wildcat and Charlie Cream. I'm at the uh, Duel in the Desert here in Las Vegas, Nevada, here in the Cox Pavilion. And we're watching a couple of ranked teams right now, the second game of the day, Syracuse and Mississippi State. And I'm having a conversation with uh, Charlie Green, who's well known for putting bracketology on the women's side. Uh, he mentioned, he and I talked a little bit yesterday, and he said the uh, needle would move after today, but we're going to find out just how much. Charlie, how you doing today? Oh, I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, just talk about the needle moving this week, and then what once conference play starts in about a week and a half, and then moving forward. Well, yeah, this this tournament or event, I guess you'd probably call it, the Duel in the Desert, um, brings you know, four top 25 teams to the table. They're all matching up today in one way or another. Um, so I, I think what we saw in the Oregon. Texas A&M game just finished was how good Oregon is. If you measure that against how they played against and against Mississippi State a week ago, and and it also kind of gives you a measurement of what A&M is. Maybe that Mississippi State handled Oregon. A&M now twice hasn't been able to get within single digits of the Ducks. So they, that so in terms of where the needles falling and. It, that's a good measurement of some of these teams. Maybe A&M clearly has some work to do to even get to the level of, of Oregon, but now they're going to be playing against Mississippi State in their own conference, and Oregon being that line of demarcation makes Mississippi State stretched out that much further ahead of Texas A&M where we sit right now. So that's just, just one of the things that like, this tournament let us know or gave us some insight, and as we move forward and and those teams start to compete in a and and Mississippi State's case against each other in the SEC. Looking at just the SEC right now, just for the fact that because a and and Mississippi State are both in it, how do they round out now? Tennessee seems to have maybe figured it out, but we still don't know yet because conference play hadn't started. Yeah, I think Tennessee uh, is better than I expected, but I still don't know exactly what Tennessee is because they rely they are relying on a lot of freshmen and the freshmen are making a lot of mistakes but their talent has overcome those mistakes and that game against Texas was sort of the the perfect um, kind of measure to to illustrate that that they're they're still making bad passes taking bad shots but they're good 
and they're gonna and they're not afraid. And not being afraid allowed them to make some big shots against Texas and, and allow them to get that that one win. Strangely, Tennessee hasn't played a good schedule up to this point, up to this moment we're talking right now. Tennessee always plays a dynamic schedule, and they haven't. Other than that game against Texas, it's really hard to. And that's why I said I, I still don't know exactly what Tennessee is, be, largely because of that. And freshmen just just starting their careers can be so volatile from game to game or even half to half. And we saw we saw it here today. Right. I mean, Kennedy Carter, Texas A&M, scores 46 last week against USC, playing, a, 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 albeit a better Pac-12 team in Oregon today, really struggled. Re- I mean, just couldn't find her way. Uh, made some shots, sure, but wasn't able to really distribute and lead the team the way I think she wants to and Coach Gary Blair would like her to. So, um, so you know, I, I'll take that back to the Tennessee situation. You know, you just never know what freshmen are, so I think it's hard for us to really tell what Tennessee is. They've got a couple games coming up, Stanford, and then they get into conference play. I think they start with Kentucky, um, and that'll start to give us a little bit better indication. The one thing that I've noticed about freshmen, at what point does the light go on and they start to finish the game? Not just start one and kind of like have spots in it in between, but the last two minutes or last four minutes of a game, can they figure it out, either come from behind or can they hold on to a lead and stretch it out? Yeah, I don't know if you can absolutely pinpoint it. It it sounds like a cop-out answer, but every freshman is also different from the the next freshman. Some of them them kind of, it clicks for them. Some of them right about now because now they've had basically two months of games under their belt. So they, but the competition tends to get more intense when you get into conference play. So then they've they've got to re, almost readjust in some cases. Anyway, I think maybe about midway through conference play, if you could put a general marker on it as to when a freshman, if if they are going to get it in their first year, that's when they would get it. Um, but. Like the, you know, the Tennessee group, they've got a couple of veterans that they can rely on in big spots. But there's a lot of the freshmen as well. So they all can't wait around to get it. Or Tennessee will struggle as soon as they get an SEC play, as an example. Um, I think we've seen the case of Kennedy Carter. I think we've seen moments where it looks like she's got it figured out. Today was not one of those, necessarily. But but her con- I, talking to her after the game, I don't her confidence doesn't seem to have wavered at all. She's ready for the next game. She's ready for the next challenge. And she fully expects that this won't happen again. So that's a good way to look at it. But I don't know if that means she's turned a corner or not. Because you thought, well, 46 points against USC. She's got it. And then today, she just... It just she wasn't in rhythm. She was in foul trouble. She was frustrated, and it and it showed. And and one of the things that Coach Blair talked about about her after the game was that she can't let she can't let it show. Right. And that's something you learn as a freshman too, especially as a freshman point guard. Right. Your team relies on you, although you're a first year player, because you're the point guard. They rely on you to sort of dictate things. And if you're walking around frustrated about fouls, about turnovers, about not getting your shot clean, it starts to purveyor on the rest of the team, and we saw the end result. I cover three conferences in the Houston area, myself and my compadre, the uh, American, the U of H, Conference USA with Rice, uh, and actually four, 
uh, Southland with HBU and the swag with Texas Southern. Speaking on the first two, basically, especially the first one, the American, we all know where that's, to do, where that's headed. And who picks up the slack and challenges? Because I haven't seen UConn play a couple of times this year, up close and personal. Uh, I was at uh, Columbus for the double hitter, and I saw them watch them dismount both teams. You know, uh, Ohio State and uh, uh, Stanford. It was it was interesting, and it was almost like they were in midseason form and, and ready to hit down and get on the track and just like boom the, the train is running yeah well that's that's UConn I mean the, the talent is immense the, the, the coaching is you know second to none um, I, Notre Dame did challenge them though that was UConn it took everything they had they were a little banged up in that game but Notre Dame's more banged up than almost anybody in the country so Notre Dame has really impressed me in that maybe it's it's tougher to say when the lights really go on whether that that, that same that same kind of game could happen but I, Notre Dame gave them a tussle something that was it was a difficult night for UConn but otherwise you're right the trains really kind of just chugging along in the American conference there's, there's just nobody that's going to really challenge them now USF's a very good team, um, but I, I think we've, we've seen that movie before. USF's had some good teams, and they're still, it's, they're not even in the same stratosphere as UConn. Um, so now that UConn's essentially you know, just about done with their non-conference play, this is where it kind of gets boring from, from their perspective. We start to turn our focus to other teams across the country because that's where the more competitive and more compelling games are going to be. We just now we sort of wait around for UConn on the other side of conference play as we as we get into the to the the real meat in the the postseason. Conference USA they offer a cha- offer a challenge to everybody just because they are who they are. Uh, just got Mil- uh, Western Kentucky, Middle Tennessee, you know, teams like that, that that compete on a regular basis to get to the tournament, but it's, and it's everybody else. Have, is, is there is, is there any way possible that the rest of the teams in the conference put a challenge toward those two teams because they seem to be on top of each on top of each other? I, I don't think so. I I, I kind of like Western Kentucky quite a bit. They 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 did some nice things in the non conference, um, and it, it's it's one of those things that in a lot of the you know quote unquote mid major leagues, once a program kind of gets rolling it's it's really hard for the other teams to catch up for a, it takes a while and I think Western Kentucky and Middle Tennessee State Middle Tennessee State even, even more historically but are you know kind of have it cranking the year after year they're just able to even if they're turning over players the people they're bringing in they're just sort of taking those taking those roles or somebody becomes a 10 from a 10 point score to an 18 point score and and they don't miss a beat, and it's it just really seems hard for those other schools to break through. I mean, we saw it in the MAC with Marist for years, for instance, when the WCC with Gonzaga for years, especially when Kelly Graves was there. Right. They, they just no one could penetrate that, and I think that with Middle Tennessee and Western Kentucky, we kind of hit that. We're in that kind of that 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 zone right now with for them. Uh, Swag is a one-team uh, uh, contender. Uh, Southland, same way. Any mid-majors 
conferences that are capable on, on that level, are capable of getting, uh, maybe getting lucky and getting two in. It's going to be tough this year. I, I, I think if we're talking about a league, maybe it is a, a Conference USA, maybe. Um, uh, this year, though, I, I, it's going to be tough. Um, you know, I, there's maybe a chance like a team, like say like a Belmont doesn't win. They might be a team in the mix for an at-large just because they've done some, they've done some relatively impressive things. Um, but that, I think that's still going to be a stretch. You know, I think we're. I think the Missouri Valley that got two last year. I think they're down a little bit. Um, I'm just trying, I'm trying to think of possibilities. I, and I, I know I kind of did a quick look, and I think like, I don't really see that two bid mid major league unless something like uh, you know uh, we talked about the Metro Atlantic a little bit. You know, they're not. They don't have a Marist of a, of a right, five right. to ten years ago anymore, so they don't. They're not going to have that kind of team. Um, you know, it's it's it is it's getting harder and harder to find those. Although some mid majors did some good things, a lot of them didn't follow it up. You know, they they would win a they win a big game and then get tripped up somewhere by someone that they shouldn't be losing to, and it almost they almost trump each other, and, and then we're kind of back to square one. So I wouldn't anticipate it. Um, it'll have to. It'll it'll certainly have to take someone absolutely dominating their league, and then ha- and then they better have a notch in the non-conference. And that's why I say like a Western Kentucky maybe if they can dominate for USA with what they were able to do in the non-conference. You know, uh, with some with some good competition. Um, Maybe they could they could sneak in as an at large. You just never want to risk it, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. Because anything can happen. We watched it with UNC and uh, uh, Wolford the other night. You know, exactly. If you if, like, Coach said, if you're not ready to play, that'll happen. Yeah. Two last questions. Uh, two last conferences. Since we're out here at, at UNLV, Mountain West, and with at Syracuse uh, in the uh, ACC, just talk about those two conferences, and we'll, we'll be done. with Okay, I think I think Mountain West is what, what, kind of what we just talked about. I think it's it's just it's become a one bid league. It didn't used to be, right? But TCU also used to be in the league. BYU also used to be in the league, and they're not anymore. Right. And Colorado State think, used to be in the league. Yeah, it, I I just think New Mexico New Mexico had a, a had a nice little run in the non conference, but they they've had a couple injuries and they've sort of faded a little bit here uh, in in the last couple weeks of the non conference. So. They would be the only possible hope, and I think there's kind of their stumbles at the end. But Oklahoma team has had their struggles absolutely blew New Mexico's doors off, and that didn't they didn't solidify. New Mexico have solidified something, and they just weren't able to do it. Um, and it's, in terms of the ACC, gosh, I mean, that's just a, a great deep league. Um, you see, you know, Syracuse has had a nice non-conference season. I think better than many expected. Uh, this this game against Mississippi State will will, will be a, a real indicator, uh-huh. um, but I, I still think you're looking at Syracuse. You're, you're still talking about the sixth best team in the ACC. Maybe we, we, we talked about Notre Dame a little bit already. Yeah. Um, Duke has a has a nice win against South Carolina. Uh, although their schedule hasn't been as tough as it normally is, but 
Louisville right now, I, I see as a number one type seed. So I, I right actually right now, if, if, I, if I were to pick my number ones, it'd obviously be UConn. Uh-huh. But then we'd have uh, we'd have Mississippi State would be one of them. Okay. We'd have Louisville as one of them. Okay. And we have Notre Dame as one of them. So we got two ACC teams as number one seeds right now. With, with South Carolina just on the just kind of on the on the just on the outside looking in. So, you know, basically four of the top five teams in the country, according to me, for whatever that's worth, are from two, two leagues, the ACC and the, and the SEC, which isn't wholly unusual. Right. But I think but that'll, that kind of gives us a, a good jumping off point for how good the ACC and how deep the ACC has, has a chance to be or already is, really. And one last conference, I'd be remiss, and I'd probably get talked about, probably get refused a credential if I don't. The Big 12. The Big 12, uh, it kind of looks a lot like Baylor, Texas, West Virginia, and then everybody else. Um, and I'm, and I'm, somebody's going to probably be mad at me for saying that. I'm, probably, I'm slighting Oklahoma. They, but Oklahoma struggled in the, in the non-conference and had, had a couple clunkers. They, they lost to a Florida team that just lost to, to just lost to Chattanooga yesterday. Um, so you know, Oklahoma's got a lot of ground to make up to get to the level of, and, and it's and West Virginia is very good, and they're going to get their best player back. Uh, and so they've been very good without their best player, but Baylor and Texas are elite programs and, and very and elite teams this year. Texas is outstanding, and. That I think anybody who follows Big Twelve basketball is already pointing to the games that Baylor and Texas are meeting, again, and then and then keeping an eye on West Virginia when when they meet either one of those because basically because of what West Virginia did in the Big Twelve tournament last year. Um, but it's really the regular season championship should come down to who wins those games between Baylor and Texas, and that's really what it was last year too. All right, Charlie. I'm gonna let you get back to work. Game for the start. You know, we get back and get situated. Uh, but uh, I thank you for your for your comments. Uh, it was enlightening, and, and as you said, the deal is gonna move after today. It is. All right. This is Jerry, Enjoy it. Thank you. This is Jerry Lee Willard Jr., the College Sports Report, talking to Charlie Cream, Mister Bracketologist from this basketball. Once again, thank you very much, Wildcats, for the great interview you did with Charlie Cream. I do what I can. And what did you, since you, since you just, since you referenced it, what bad basketball did you see in Vegas or just that disappointed you? That, that's how, that's how this conversation basically all started. Uh, day one was not a good matchup. Uh, it featured uh, Hawaii against uh, uh, AM and, and Mississippi State versus uh, UNLV, the local team. Blowouts, both games, conversations kind of looked at. We kind of looked at the floor, looked at saw, saw, and then we just kind of like just started talking about basketball in general. And uh, that's how I ended up getting the uh, interview with uh, Charlie Setter for the next day. Uh, we kind of like that some senior scouts now came in and they wanted to they just sit down and they wanted to talk to have some conversation with him. So I pretty much let them do that, and I just kind of like just sat and watched. Um, just listening on the on that conversation, and then uh, I asked the question before everybody left. Uh, asked Charlie, you know, will the uh, needle move this week? He said, yeah, especially tomorrow. And that sets up the uh, the conversation uh, that interview that I got with him, and also it set up the game with 
Oregon versus uh, A&M and Syracuse versus uh, Mississippi State. One year later, big girl, she's ready to go. She gets an early start. She doesn't carry. Um, her emotions her emotions beyond the uh, place to the, one place to the next. You're talking about Pierre McCon for, for Mississippi State. Yes. Um, she looks like a different ball player. And by the time conference play gets to the uh, tournament, once they get to uh, conference tournament play, she'll be a seasoned veteran. She'll have some things going her way. And she'll, she'll just, just be playing instead of just, you know, instead of trying to force the game or trying to force, you know, situations. She'll, she's calmed down. She's got a little bit bigger, a little bit better body on her this time around, and she's ready to go to work. I also talked to her uh, after the game was over with, uh, on Wednesday, and she had a lot to say about where she, where she is now as far as basketball and, and what she's looking forward to and the goals of the team now this year. Uh, but she did say you know, getting to, to the final four like they did last year, it was a help. It was a big help. Because now she knows what you know what it is to, to she understands what it what it is to, to be in the big light. Uh, point guard, once she gets going with, with ball handling, uh, getting through the defense and stuff, it, it all works out for them. Syracuse is still Syracuse. They'll put up a bunch of threes, They'll give you some headaches and all every now and then, but they weren't able to sustain uh, a long run. And when Mississippi State decided they wanted to separate themselves from they were able to do that. Oregon game was pretty much like it was a couple of weeks back when they played A&M. Uh, I don't know how this all got set up, but it was interesting how a team would play each other twice. Uh, non-conference play. WNIT was the first first matchup. Yeah. And then, it's, it's, well, I, can, well I, I would explain that then. Uh, you, you set that up just, just because of what you – Trying to get up as uh, get as a matchup, so that was a better matchup. But the same result, uh, Oregon. Uh, you did what they, you know, they're long, typical long, uh, uh, pack uh, twelve team, and they got after. Literally, they got after. Uh, when A and M decided wanted to start make, uh, making a play, they weren't able to just because of the fact that A uh, and M didn't have. Real good post play, uh, right? Not right at this time. This kid is still allowing her emotions and all to move her and carry her forward or carry her backward. She's not allowing the game to come to her and just go and play ball. Hopefully, by the time conference tournament play gets gets around, she'll be able to get going. Um, so that's on her. I'm right now. That's on her because she she plays to the level of competition. The game before Oregon, she went twelve for twelve. We <laughs> talked about that. Yeah, uh, that she needs to, to, to just go play ball, not carry situations from possession to possession. You know, you all both agree, and I I do too. She's got some kind of way she has to figure that out. Quick, because I think it's this week that they start uh, conference play, and it's going to be interesting. 
Um, can't see Fia going. They're going to be who they are. You know, they beat us on each other. And we can figure it out once he gets the camera play. Uh, and then once it's, uh, the – I say for day three just because of the Manchester that was set up. You know, if you're going to watch bad basketball, watch it early. Don't watch it late. Uh, because basically uh, UNLV played the next day and so did uh, Hawaii. It's a three-day uh, round-robin, and both UNLV and Hawaii got a bye for uh, had an off day in between. Uh, Charlie and I talked about that, you know, how to, uh, looking at UNLV and Hawaii, how far those, those programs have uh, fallen, fallen, fallen off, the, off the map, literally. Because Hawaii does not look like Hawaii. Uh, at least what I'm accustomed to watching when I've, when I've seen them play, just because of how, how they were years ago when they made runs. And it also, Charlie and I talked about how this particular duel in the desert had as many uh, ranked teams in as uh, a couple of years back when it was Texas, Louisville, Marist, and I think there's one other team that came in. Um, I can't remember it offhand, but uh, they have the quality of teams to play that wins the four teams that rank. That's a lot for a non-conference uh, matchup, you know, other than the uh, NIT. All right, thank you. Very, right, yeah, thank you very much, sir. As, as as you are the the college sports report and hockey folks find you on the internet, sir. You can find me at uh, Facebook, Twitter, TweetDeck, JL Woodley One, Jerry Lee, Jerry L Woodley Jr. Uh, on SoundCloud, Blogger, Blogspot, uh, and YouTube, AKSV VCSR. The College Sports Report. Okay, so now we we got the national scope outlook from Wildcat and ESPN Charlie Cream. Shift gear to to the local. We already touched on TSU playing Southern on New Year's night. U of H plays Columbia Thursday night, Thursday evening, really five p.m. And then Columbia's in town for a few days because they play Rice. Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. So U of H women are 10 and 3. Rice women are 9 and 2. So both are doing well in the win column, but one of the two has a much better RPI than the other. U of H has an RPI as we speak as of this podcast of 29. Yes, 2-9. Oh, yes. U of H has the second best RPI in the American Athletic Conference. We know who has the number one. top RPI. That's naturally UConn. Rice, in case anyone is wondering, Rice, Rice's RPI is 164. So you see the very big difference between 29 and 164. Gentlemen, did some more checking. Let's see if I can pull it up again here. As I said, U of H is 29, second-best RPI in the American. There are only four schools in, in, of the American with RPIs less than 100. 
UConn number one RPI overall, U of A 29, South Florida 42, UCF Central Florida 49. Next, as in the fifth best, fifth ranked in the conference is Tulane at 121. So you go from 49 to 121. The worst, the worst is East Carolina, who has a 258 RPI. Now, win-loss wow. record, most of these schools in the conference, only two of the members have losing records. Wichita State new members, 5-9, and nine, Memphis is 5-8. and eight. But East Carolina has a 7-5 record. Now, you say they got an RPI of 258, but they're 7-5. and five. That's because their strength of schedule is 328. So in terms of strength of schedule, of course, as we all know, number one is UConn. U of H, strength of schedule. And strength of schedule, for the listeners who, who may not know, is based on who you're playing, your opponents, and then who the opponents play. So it's the opponents and then the opponent's opponent. So U of H is, has a 73 strength of schedule. Not great, but RPI 29 is held by playing Texas A&M on the road and Rutgers on the road. Those are both, both losses, but it also helps that you play them. So you got to play good opponents. Help shot, help your strength of schedule. South Florida, 68. UCF has 33. So once again, this, those top four, none of them are ranked worse than 100. Tulane, fifth, has, our, has a strength schedule of 160. The strength of schedule for the remaining eight members ranges from 133 to 328. <laughs> so I, I throw it out to you, and I, and I mentioned this in my interview with U of A's head coach, Ronald Huey. You can go to my website and list an interview. He touches on it, and, and all three of us know this, is that the conferences, all conferences, you know, strongly suggest, urge, encourage their member schools to schedule based on certain criteria. You know, you got to have a certain RPI opponent in, in top 20, you know, t- 1 through 25, 26 through 50, 51 through 100, etc. You try to minimize the high, high RPIs, you know, 101 and above, but especially 151 higher, you know, higher as 300, etc. Well, fellas, if we got a member school at 328, somebody's not doing their part in, in scheduling tough opponents. When you got eight of your 12 schools ranging with a strength of schedule of 133 to 328, someone's not doing their part. Coach Huey yeah. said that, you know, sometimes the conference will allow one or two uh, member schools to schedule poorly, you know, weaker opponents to, to get a win kind of thing. You know, if it's a new program, rebuilding program, reloading, rebuilding, they will allow those kind of things. Well, it looks like based on this, majority of these schools must be rebuilding this year because these numbers aren't very good. And I say all this to make this point. The American 
on the men's side, men's basketball and football talks about being want, want to be considered power six in men's basketball, part of the mid, the whatever it's, it's the mid seven, the upper seven, whatever the term is, but it's seven major conferences, the major seven, that's what it's called, men's basketball, the major seven. They're part of that. Apparently, they don't care about women's basketball. They're good with UConn waving the flag, being the best team in the country, and the rest of y'all do what you want to do. They're not too concerned. You know, South Florida has been ranked top 25 for, for a while now, consistently. But as you heard in an interview with Charlie Cream, he doesn't really consider them a threat in the tournament, you know, on the national landscape, right? Wildcat, correct? Correct. We have Tulane. Temple, I got, believe, got in the tournament. Tulane's got in there, you know, on occasion. But if the American Athletic Conference wants to be, well, I don't even know what they do, but if I would choose to believe they do, want to be considered a power in women's basketball besides UConn, then the rest of these schools need to step up. Schedule, schedule better, and then naturally you need to win some of these games too. But first things first, you need to schedule better. This ain't it. And the, the irony is this. Even with these poor numbers from the other eight schools, their strength of schedule as a conference is six. Their RPI as a conference is seven. Wildcat, you will, you will not believe when I tell you that the Big 12 strength of schedule overall as a conference is ranked eight. Yes, behind, behind the American at six. The Big 12 is ranked eight. Behind the Metro Atlantic. The, the MAC, Metro Atlantic, is ranked seven in overall strength of schedule as a conference. So let me pull up the numbers, and my source for this information is real-time RPI because the NCAA.com website lists the RPIs of the, of the schools but doesn't give a breakdown of strength of schedule and conference rankings, things of that sort. But let me just pull up the Big 12 strength of schedule numbers for the members. Texas, 34. This is strength of schedule. I'll give you the RPIs in a second. West Virginia, 96. Oklahoma, 3. Baylor, 168. TCU, 195. Kansas State, 120. Oklahoma State, 214. Kansas, 205. Iowa State, 296. Texas Tech, 259. That's a Power 5 conference, right? Supposedly. Yeah, that's what you yeah. Now, the RPIs, Texas is 9, West Virginia is 14, Oklahoma 33, Baylor 36. That's it for top 40. Next is TCU at 71, Kansas State at 78. Oklahoma State, 79, Kansas, 80, Iowa State, 240, Texas Tech, 246. 
That's rough. So I'm assuming I'm assuming these schools rely on being in a tougher conference and ha- and having their conference matchups boost their RPI when they when they play in conference. That's what I believe is their rationale to justify these weak ass non conference numbers. That can, that can be the only thing, and as you said, what's glowing is that the officials, obviously institutionally they're not doing it, but also at the conference level, nobody's pushing the issue. And that is my point. Yeah. So at the spring meetings in 2018, we'll see if other conferences will address this and, you know, and I guess stronger urge their member schools to schedule better because this ain't it. And Wildcat this year and retired locally as specifically U of H with their RPI of 29, their strength of schedule being 73. U of H now the conference play begins for them, December 30th, road game at SMU. For U of H to make the tournament, the big dance, they cannot lose to conference opponents besides UConn, realistically. Now, you know that UCF and, and South Florida with their RPIs in the 40s may be split with them and be okay. But everybody else, the 133s and above, we were there at the NCAA mock selections. We know the committee looked at those those numbers in red on the right side of the team sheet. Yeah, 100, 101 and, and, you know, higher, that's, that's red flags. Oh, no, they lost. So U of A loses to East Carolina. That's 328. Oh, 258. Oh, no, that's bad. Um, Tulsa, 200. That's bad. They, they can't lose those games. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's even if they wrong. go, if they go ten and six in the conference, two of those losses because they played UConn twice this year, I believe. So that's two. So if the other four are USF and UCF, which I don't believe they play them twice, both of them, they can't lose it to the other ones. But as you also know, if you have a bad loss, you got to get a good win. And a good win means what? Beating somebody ranked RPI top 50 or top 25. On the road. On right. the road. On the road. That's what y'all talk Because you, 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 you get a point. You get more points for winning that road game. Well, if your conference <laughs> doesn't have any of those top 25, top, 20, top, top 50 wins, you don't have a chance to get them. <laughs> So the only chance U of H has to get one is against who? <laughs> that ain't happening. Exactly. That ain't happening. The only shot That's is Connecticut. Utah. And they only play Connecticut one time. Look at the schedule. They only play them once. And that's January uh, 13th. That's coming up, fellas. It's just not right, right around the corner. And so, I was here in Houston. Yes. Yeah. Lisa's here. 
So that's why I say it's important for the other schools to schedule tougher. Because yeah. in the end, you're hurting yourself as well. Because if your member schools don't schedule tougher opponents, you don't have a, you lessen your chances to get quality wins. Yeah, but in, and and increase your chance of getting a bad loss. Add those two things up, you're not going to be in the tournament. If you're not in the tournament, you just repeat this cycle over and over again. <laughs> not on TV, teams don't see girl. Play on see you play on TV. Well, I want to go to you. You're not on TV. Who you, who you, who do you who, who are you playing on conference? Oh no, I don't want to go there. I want to I want to play go somewhere where I'm playing top competition. This ain't it. So you repeat that cycle. This cycle is the end. So hopefully, some listeners to to this podcast are part of the. American Athletic Conference specifically, but a Conference USA also. Rice stream schedules in 300. They haven't even begun conference play yet. You got to do better. And gentlemen, HBU women, I'm on a roll. So I don't want to have this considered as throwing rocks at the program, but on these podcasts, we tell it like it is, correct? Yep. We don't, we, we don't hold back. So let me pull up HBU's schedule or RPI. They are four and six overall. But in terms of RPI, they're zero and six. How how is that well, possible? Because those well, four wins were against non division one opponents. It is what it is. So uh, and I'm talking, you know, Houston Tillotson and, and schools like that. Yep. So in, in, in that sense, we as we know from being in the mock selections, those four games, those four wins don't exist. The committee, there'll be a note at the bottom of the team sheet saying you played these four non-division one schools, and that's that. They don't, they don't count. So in, in in the eyes of the committee, HBU is 0-6. Yes, they beat Letourneau. Yes, they beat Jarvis Christian. Yes, they beat Paul Quinn. And yes, they beat Houston Tillerson. But in terms of the committee, those, might have, those, those are exhibition games. They don't count. And basically what it boils down to is you got to win your conference. Exactly. And in a mid-major, you only get one swinging. On a one grabbing the ring, conference tournament. That's it. So let me step down off my soapbox. I hope my point has been is clear. 
Oh, you didn't mention you didn't mention conference USA. You just kind of like floated rice in the situation, but they just they in the mix just like everybody else. Conference you know, USA stream is scheduled at twenty six ranking as a conference. RPI is seventeen. I could pull up their numbers if you want. We can look at how those numbers compared, and I'm sure it's not very good either. And it's I mean it's a problem for what group of five and lower tier conferences, but if you want to be considered good or, you know, considered mid-major, because mid-major programs like Green Bay, Marquette, or well, Marquette's in Big East, but, you know, like a Green Bay, South Dakota State, they schedule tough, and they win some of those games. So they have a chance to be a, uh, an at-large team if they don't win their conference tournament. Comments to USA. As we know, as you heard, interview with Wildcat and Charlie Cream, West Kentucky, RPI 26, transit schedule 25. Clearly, that's yep. the best team, no doubt. Best team. Next best strength of schedule is Charlotte at 62. But next best RPI, I go from 26, I go from 26 at West Kentucky to 131. Yeah. That's the next best RPI in Conference USA. 26 is first, 131 is second. That's not going to get it done if you have hopes of being a, as we know it, a multi bid league. So, in these. These are examples when people complain, fans complain about all the big-time programs take all the bids. Well, if you don't schedule tougher non-conference and then win some of those games, you have to give your chance, yourself a chance to get her that large bid. That's right. And that's one of the things Charlie Cream he says and writes every year when he does the bubble team that he looks at who has top 50 wins. Some teams, some of the bubble teams last year had two or three, and they got in because that's all there was. The other team didn't have two or three. Two. I'm talking about two. Teams got in last year and previous years with two or three top 50 wins. That's it. Two or three. So this is women's college basketball. UConn is the queen of the mountain. South Carolina is the defendant champ. Mississippi State is right there. They, they end the UConn's 111 winning streak. And I think this year's squad Mississippi State maybe be a little bit better than last year's squad. Maybe not as deep, but as long as Tierra McCollum can get it done and stay out of foul trouble up at six or seven, she's a load. <laughs> and folks can't stop her when she gets going. Yep. Yeah. She's but afraid of getting nothing done. You got a top tier, and then other schools dropping on down. But really, once you get to 21 through 40, 
talent level drops off, quality drops off, and then you get past 40, there's not a lot of great teams out there. As we see when we picked, you know, did the mocks and, and picked teams. Ooh, look at this. Look at that record. Look at who, look who, look who they played. Ooh, look at that. But then you, you come around and say, well, who's better? <laughs> and then you see nobody's better, you go back to the team that's looked at. That's not good for the growth of the sport. If you got a handful of teams you know are good every year, and that's it. Now we could come, you know, have further discussions about well, the money's not doesn't trickle down to the lower tier schools, lower tier programs. We get that, but somehow you got to schedule those tougher teams, go on the road, get that check, and then get a win. Right? Yep. It's the only way. It's the only way. If you're talking about building, being a, a real program. So we'll see how things play out. Say, say it again, Doc. I say you have to find a way to get it done. Your point is very valid, extremely valid. So I'm going to put a bow on it. We've started trickling in. We've applied for a Final Four credentials. Uh, I think Wildcat, I hope you can take, got, t- took care of your day. going to do it Thursday. I've already been approved. I know Doc's applied, so I think all of us are going to be approved. We hope all of us get approved to be in Columbus to cover the Final Four. And we're going to do another podcast in Columbus and see if we can sprinkle in a guest or two or, or you know, with the interview, add the comments. But this is just real talk for women's college basketball. So that's what we do on these KG, Fiscal Wildcat, and Doc podcast. Real quick, shift gears into uh, just summarize the Rockets struggling right now. They've lost three in a row, dealing with injuries. The 14-game winning streak ended at the hands of the Lakers. But, I mean, injuries to Luke Mbamute, dislocated right shoulder. He's out. They miss his defense. Clint Capella initially was dealing with a left, a bruise on his heel, left heel, contusion. Now he's out two more games with an orbital fracture that he, he suffered in the Christmas night game against OKC. He didn't realize he had so much adrenaline going. He didn't realize that he had the fracture. He kept playing. To get, they think the game injury happened in the third quarter. He played the rest of the game, and then after the game, started swelling, and then they realized that he has an orbital fracture. And then Chris Paul has a strain adductor, so he's missing some games. So key injuries to probably three of their four top defenders, James Harden can only do so much. You know, he's scoring points. He scored 51 points back-to-back game, and they, they still lost. But healthy, if they get healthy, they can contend with the Warriors. Mike D'Antoni fans are now starting to realize what coach needs to play his bench more. Well, yeah. <laughs> Trevor Reza without Luke playing has played 41 minutes per game the last six games. 
It's 48 minutes in a game. That means only sitting down seven minutes. Last six. Trevor ain't a young man. Even, even if you were a young man, those minutes take, take toll. And so you gotta, he's got to – he needs a rest. You may see more minutes from Joe Chi. You know, the seven-foot young man from China who our colleague Michael Murphy said on, in podcast when he came back and visited that Joe Chi was two years away from being two years away. So, but if nothing else, Joe Chi – Every, every time I see him on the floor, I think about that conversation too. So he, but Joe T can block some shots. Like he, he's still very wiry and slim. But when you need minutes, and you got to just give some guys rest, give them yeah. a chance. You know, just put them out there two minutes at a time and take them out. Just a little breaks that for a reason will help. If you can get that forty-one down to thirty-five and thirty-eight, even that little rest can help in the long run. So they got to play Washington and Boston on the road before playing the Lakers again at home on New Year's Eve. So we'll see if they can just, you know, ride it out here and then get everybody healthy and then regroup and go from there. So basketball is still fun. People are enjoying my Instagram clips, the YouTube interviews of the U of H men. Start conference play Thursday, road game at South Florida. Coog's RPI is 62, but they're ranking in, in one of the predicted measures, the Ken Palm rating is 40. And more and more people nationally are now protecting them as a tournament team. They got four teams coming from the, the American, Wichita State, Cincinnati, SMU, and Houston. So, but they got to continue. They can't have bad losses. If they lost to USF, that'd be a bad loss. Then they come on Saturday, play Temple, 5 p.m. start at H&P Arena. If Temple wasn't one of those four schools I named in the tournament team, losing to Temple would be what? A bad loss. So, you you know, they got to do what they got to do. So we got interviews yeah. with Coach Sampson, Rob Gray, and Galen Robinson, Jr. Wildcat was there as well this morning. They're on my YouTube channel at Houston Brown Bar Review as well as a blog, Mentor's blog. Also, they believe in this team. It's a different team, different vibe, a winning vibe. I really enjoy Gaynor's comment about this team doesn't have any boys on it. <laughs> this is a veteran team. They're much more mature. So you can go listen to that at my YouTube channel. So hopefully, football season is over. I really don't want to touch too much on U of H sucking in, in Hawaii. Um, Coach Applewhite, Cougar finished 7-5, me- mediocre season. Coach, didn't, he just did not allow Derrick King to be a playmaker. And offense was too conservative. U of H lost to Fresno State. Applewhite got another year. Needs to open up the, the offense playbook. If he, don't, if he doesn't do it, he needs to go. It's Ed Oliver's next, last year, junior year. Then he goes to the NFL and gets paid. Hopefully has a great NFL career. Next year is his, his, his Applewhite's proven year. This year really turned off some folks. You know, a lot of people believe once Brian Johnson took the job at Florida, offense coordinator, that the bowl game would be Applewhite's chance to shine and show what he can do an offensive play calling. <laughs> nope. Conservative, conservative, conservative. Even at the announcers questioning the play calling and the selections. 
So we'll see if folks can get Apple White, get into the air, and say, Major, loosen up, man. <laughs> loosen up. Let the man run offense. You, you, you just had a man, Greg Ward, lead you to high heights by letting him play. So it can be done. So let Derek King see if he can do it. And we'll see how that, how that goes. And I say this, as Wildcats joked about in previous podcasts and off the record, you know, when we talk, I can say this because I am an alum and I spend my money there because I am now a U of H life member. So U of H life member, I put in my money, life member. So yes, I'm not just putting on my media hat because I don't cover the football team. So I'm a life member. You can do that. So, all right. So let's go wrap it up. How can folks find it on the internet? Or tell me real quick about U of H and Apple White. This is uh, Kenyatta Cavill, Dr. Cavill. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Dr. Kenyatta Cavill is D-R-K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-C-A-V-I-L. You can catch me every Tuesday from 545 to 715 on KKBQ 92.9 FM HD2. Uh, you can catch it live on Facebook. As we just said, Dr. Kenyatta Cavill, D-R-K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-A-C-A-V-I-L, or you can catch it live stream on www.kcoh-tv.com, kcoh-tv.com. Okay. The website at tv-agency.com as well for all the information there. Sounds good. Thank you, sir. You can catch me, uh, this is Jerry Whitley. You can catch me at uh, JL Whitley1, Jerry L. Whitley Jr. on Twitter, TweetDeck, Facebook, and on Blogger, Blogspot, uh, YouTube, and SoundCloud, AKSV, VCSR, and V College Sports Report. Gentlemen, thank you as always for your time. I am KG of the Houston Round Ball Review, website HoustonRoundBallReview.com, YouTube, same thing, Houston Round Ball Review, Instagram, same thing, Houston Round Ball Review, but I'm on Twitter as the, or the, HR Review. Thank you for a lot of the retweets, and especially of uh, the video tribute the Rockets did for Patrick Beverly on Friday. Last count, I saw the favorites, it was up to 400 favorites, 400 likes, and 200-something retweets of that tweet that I put out. I recorded the, the tribute from the big board. So a lot of love for Pat Beverly. He's now with the Clippers. Was able to play due to injury out for the year. But the, he still has fans here in Ace Town. That's clear based on those tweets and retweets. <clears throat> Our podcasts are available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pod directory. If podcasts are out there, our podcasts are ready for you to listen to them and pull them up on your on your mobile device. We have a Facebook page, KG, Bithel Wildcat, and Doc on Facebook. So once again, fellas, thank you for your time. I'll wrap it up. As I always do. In conclusion, be true, be cool, and do more.